Oh, there I was. There I was in the top of the tree with this rhinoceros pointing his gun straight at me. A rhinoceros? Yes. Oh, Captain, what did you do? What could I do? I had to marry his daughter. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 52. I got a fire engine. Hi, this is Noah Diamond, and I'm here with the magnificent Matthew Conium. Matthew, uh, I always feel like this is your time of year because I associate you with associating Christmas with the Marx Brothers. And I wonder if you're planning to do your customary Christmas rewatch this year. I am indeed, yes. Um, I'm not doing the full one. I do the full, the full one every, every two years. But I will certainly be, uh, be dipping into it in, uh, in the late Christmas nights. And it couldn't be more Christmassy here. It is actually snowing outside. Ah, how idyllic in Bath, England. <laughs> uh, well, we have a great show this month and a great guest. Before we get on with that, though, I just want to mention that the holidays, as festive as they may be, don't entirely explain the excitement and good cheer in the air right now, because it seems like everyone in the world is talking about the upcoming launch of our Patreon program. Everyone's repeating it around the club. And uh, we're getting close on this, folks. Uh, subscriptions will be open by January 1st, and our January episode will be the first to include a bonus segment that's available exclusively to our Patreon subscribers. Bring your dog around and we'll give him a bonus segment, too. And if you stick around at the end of this episode, we will tell you more about the Patreon program, what's coming up, our four levels of membership, and the rewards that come along with all of them. Uh, so that's coming up at the end of this show. But for now, let's get things started. Our special guest is Brian Levant, writer, producer, showrunner, director, and collector. His hundreds of credits include Happy Days, Mark and Mindy, the Leave it to Beaver reboot, and the films Beethoven, Jingle All the Way, The Spy Next Door, Are We There Yet?, and the two live-action Flintstones. Brian is also a passionate collector of toys, and his lavish new book, My Life and Toys, shows off his astounding collection. And it includes more than a few Marx Brothers toys and collectibles, because Brian is also a Marx maniac, and sooner or later, they all turn up here. Uh, welcome, Brian, and thanks very much for talking with us. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, I, it's hard for me to believe that I'm actually a guest on this. I feel, I feel like Groucho at the Restricted Country Club. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are more than happy to have you for a member. And you can go in the pool all the way up to the top of your head if you want to. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. No, uh, you know, the Marx Brothers uh, mean so much to me. And like most things in my life, the, the roots of it are, are in my childhood. I was a, a child of TV. Uh, I was born, you know, just a couple of years after the Marx Brothers broke up. Uh, it, after Love Happy, and I was an early TV addict, uh, the kids' TV of the day, Howdy Doody, uh, Ding Dong School, I, I, I loved them, ate them up, Captain Kangaroo, and at the same time, at the same time, my mother, who, who was a, a very interesting person, you know, she grew up 
when I was a kid, uh, her, her book group w- was led by Herschel Gordon Lewis, the man who invented the slasher film. And, and among her, her acquaintances and friends were, were uh, the, the photographer Vivian Meyer, uh, the subject of the uh, Academy Award uh, nominated documentary. And she loved movies. And, uh, and I think that, that the cinema was an escape from her family life. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, you know, she ran off uh, uh, and, and eloped with the first guy she slept with, and I was born shortly thereafter. Uh, and, and she loved comedy. And growing up, I and, and a whole generation was very privileged to have every week come into your home Jack Benny and Jackie Gleason and Red Skelton and Bob Hope and Ernie Kovacs and Groucho Marx. We were huge fans of You Bet Your Life. And, you know, even even in like third grade, I knew that $250 for the grand prize was nothing. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a ridiculously low sum, but that's not why you were watching the show. You, were, you didn't really care about the game. And it was a, a weekly delight. And, and, and I learned to imitate him very early to, to get laughs at family get togethers. This, this all leads to being in high school and having my prom date uh, throw me over for another guy. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, instead of going to the prom and instead of going to see The Who with opening act Joe Cocker, as we were supposed to, we ended up at one of our friend's older brother's places outside Chicago. And while everyone else did drugs, I sat in a room and turned on the TV and there was at the circus. Uh, I came in a little late. It wasn't uh, wasn't too hard to pick up the thread. Uh, and knowing Groucho, being aware of Harpo, even having a vague memory of seeing him on You Bet Your Life, knowing that the Marx Brothers existed, but never really having been initiated. And and it came to the scene where. Chico, and I always called him Chico until I used to hear Groucho on talk shows refer to him by his proper name. Um, and Harpo searching, uh, what was his name? Samson the Strongman's uh, a railroad, his little bedroom in the railroad car. And within it, they decide to, to search the pillow. He's tearing the pillow apart. Harpo's tearing the pillow apart, accidentally turns on the fan, and a, a snowstorm takes place. And then Harpo's imagination takes over, and suddenly he's stuffing a pillow in his in his jacket, taking the sleeping cap, putting it on, and he uh, grabs the spittoon, and he becomes a sidewalk Santa, uh, and is this flurry of imagination uh, was so childlike, so divine, and, and, and so simple, and yet so pure, and the. Checo plays along with it, and hey, hey gotta gotta be a cold winter, huh, Santa? You know. uh, it, it just it it was the moment of my initiation. Now I have been writing sketches for Cub Scouts. I submitted jokes to kid shows in Chicago when I was eight years old. I wrote for you know my. I was editor of my camp newspaper. He says, so what? Well, the other guy, I was the Sunday totem pole. Uh, and NPR Scott Simon uh, did the Wednesday totem pole. And the guy before us won a Pulitzer as a managing editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. So this was a job for serious uh, people. But I saw my future in journalism, even though 
I'd made, uh, I'd made uh, films since I was 10, Super 8 films uh, on occasion. But at that moment, I took my vows in the comedy world. And I decided that I was going to point myself towards Hollywood and to become a comedy writer, really. And to really to devote the focus, uh, the main focus of my interest, virtually only to comedy. And uh, and I, I've, I've never regretted the choice, I have to say. Uh, but, you know, from, from that moment to where I'm sitting now, you know, really, really uh, is, is we are, are playing the, uh, uh, the, the end credits to my career. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's been a tremendously successful voyage. And, and, and I love the things I, I've done. And so much of it was inspired uh, by the Marx Brothers. And following that night of seeing at the circus, I discovered uh, many years later, I discovered that uh, the person who programmed Channel 7, ABC, WLS-TV in Chicago, midnight movie on Saturdays was the uh, soon-to-be legendary uh, programmer Brandon Tartikoff. And he, in, in a much later interview, I, I, I only learned this through this interview, uh, that he was the, the, the programmer and he used that slot to see the films that he'd always wanted to see. And so you got the Marx Brothers and you, and you, and you, got, and, and you got a lot of W.C. Fields, the, the Universal films. Uh, I, I don't remember seeing the Paramount ones there. But those, those were, you know, wicked wild stuff. And, uh, and, you know, then he played a lot of the monster movies and, and, and things like that. It, it became me and several of my friends. We would, we would check the TV guide on Sunday when it came out with the paper to see what, what, whether or not you would get to see horse feathers <laughs> or the coconuts. Uh, and, you know, I don't think your younger uh, audience really appreciates how difficult it was to see 13 Marx Brothers movies. I, I, what was it? Animal Crackers wasn't even in circulation until, until the mid-70s, thanks to uh, Steve Stoliar and Groucho and Aaron Fleming, I guess, uh, and, and finally Universal. But uh, it took me 13 years to finally see all of them, which was uh, such a goal. But the hunt, it's a lot like collecting today, that... Uh, you know, it used to be that you had to go to flea markets and, and, and mildewy antique stores in rural Wisconsin to find these treasures. And now you can just open up eBay and there it is. And it's like, yes, I can, I can go on my TV and say, play the big store. The big store is there. You know, it took me like nine years to see the, somebody finally put it on the tail end of a, of a double feature with, with, with it, the races before you could see it. Uh, it. You know, it was just hard to see them all. You know, it, it's taken some of the fun out of it, I, I think. Uh, but by the end, I was really following through more out of a sense of responsibility. The same way I, I watched Mad Men you know, <laughs> the last year. So it was, I wasn't enjoying it, but I felt a responsibility to, <laughs> to watch it to the end. Um, and, and, but it, it, it was a thrill when finally the video era dawned and you could see things like the great jewel robbery, the, the, uh, which was an episode of some series. Uh, uh, what G.E. Theater, I believe. Yeah. G.E. Theater, there you go. A half-hour show. 
uh, and, and just to see things like that. And, and so at this time, when I was so heavily, you know, looking forward, living and breathing the Marx Brothers, and my mother, uh, bless her soul, bought me uh, uh, the Marx Brothers at the movies, which, which came out uh, like the same year uh, that, that this began for me. And all of a sudden, Groucho started showing up more often than he had been, you know, since, since Tell It to Groucho went off the air in like, what was it, 62 or something, right? And you didn't see much of him. He did. I remember he introduced Johnny Carson uh, yeah. uh, when Carson took over The Tonight Show. And, and I remember seeing him on the Hollywood Palace. Suddenly, suddenly Groucho started showing up uh, on Merv Griffin, you know, with Harry Ruby, you know, and singing today, Father's Father's Day, so I'm giving you a tie, uh, and all that, and, and doing long interviews. And uh, I, I particularly remember uh, Dick Cavett had a summer series, and uh, Groucho was on, and I think Groucho was, I don't know, how old was he then? Probably 78, 79. And you know, he knew Cavett. I remember reading somewhere, uh, maybe it was a, after someone's funeral, maybe Kaufman's, uh, that uh, Groucho walked uh, back to the hotel with, with Cavett, I think. And uh, they, they had a bond, you know, Cavett, Cavett, you know, who was a Carson writer, by the way, you know, and, and would have been around when Groucho guest hosted, as, as he was apt to do early on in The Tonight Show. Anyways, he, he was around... And in the Esquire had an article uh, that I'll never forget. It was a Groucho Marx does not wear a tie. And it was about how, how style was changing in California. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, you didn't have to dress the way you had to dress. And, and being the, the rebel that he was, Groucho was leading the charge. And I think it was more had to do with the turtlenecks covered his neck. <laughs> Which, you know, I worked with a lot of older actresses, and I'm sure the motivation was the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't show the wear and tear and the merchandise. Uh, he would appear in ads. He was in Skidoo, which I tried to see, but I still never have. <laughs> uh, and Groucho did the, the Playboy interview, and I'll never forget... Um, they had photos of Groucho telling his favorite joke, which was a lady walks into a drugstore, says to the clerk, do you have any talcum powder? And the clerk says, walk this way, madam. And she says, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the powder, which I don't think is, is a great joke. But obviously it came at a time uh, uh, when Groucho first heard this. It appealed to his sense uh, uh, of outrageous and, and probably was a foundation <laughs> in, in, in the double entendre in, in just trying to get ahead of, of, of a line and a moment. Uh, and and that's, what, that's what comedy is really about. It's about taking, taking the, the, those, those random thoughts that appear in the back of your head and somehow bringing it out uh, verbally. And, and so much of humor is based on misdirection almost, that you think a conversation is going to go one way and it, and it goes another way. And, and I think that you know, so much of, of contemporary humor 
is built on the sarcasm and the outsider nature uh, of Groucho and, and, and the brothers. And uh, no one is, is doing what they did today, except really on Saturday Night Live, in, in some respects, of doing more freewheeling, uh, less grounded, more let's do this because it's fun. Let's do this because it's funny. Let's do this to make people laugh and a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> and to enliven and illuminate uh, the, the insanity of life. Uh, as Gary Marshall, uh, my, one of my old mentors, used to say, man is the only animal that, that laughs. And, uh, and I heartily believe in taking advantage of that. I have heard some people suggest that uh, hyenas can also laugh, but it's not the same. They don't have a sense of humor. They just have the ability to laugh. Well, you, you think if somebody trips and falls in the pond, then they laugh, I think. Then hyenas are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, but I, only, only in Frank Taschel and cartoons, I think. There you go. Uh, I, would, I would like to read a little excerpt, uh, Brian. You articulate something in the book that um, we've heard many Marx Brothers fans say, including uh, on this show, but it's such a perfect articulation of it, and I wonder if you might elaborate on this point. It has to do with the Marx Brothers being a sort of portal to uh, all of culture. You say you're writing about your early exposure to the brothers, and you write, I was utterly obsessed. They piqued my curiosity more than any teacher ever had. I set about learning everything about Julius, Herbert, Leonard, Arthur, and Milton. Researching their work led me to explore the art form's many tributaries. I was introduced to their collaborators, like Kaufman and Perelman, and through Harpo, I met the great wits of the Algonquin Round Table. Uh, particularly when young people first meet the Marx Brothers, uh, in a sense, they're meeting the entire uh, first half of the 20th century in world culture. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that right? Yes. Uh, these, were, you know, George S. Kaufman was, was a, a great and prolific wit. And, you know, the, the, the whole mystique uh, of the Algonquin Round Table, that these were probably heavy drinkers, number one. <laughs> but the, these were, you know, the great minds, uh, literary minds, cultural minds. Uh, and, and, it, and it was all mixed up with, with Broadway and, and novels and criticism and the jazz age, all, all, all coming together in, in this, this fabulous uh, creative stew uh, that, that bled out. Dorothy Parker, you know, I mean, how does such a minor figure suddenly become so major? Because we, we look back and we appreciate the, the huge growth in, in culture, in, in the quality of writing, uh, of everything. That in, in between, you know, our American cousin, you know, that Lincoln was watching when he got shot, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to the Marx Brothers, to, to the great, to the great plays of the 30s and 40s and, and, and 50s. And, and you watched vaudeville become Broadway and, and how Broadway attracted uh, the intelligentsia, how, how, and, and magazines like uh, the New Yorker, which Walcott wrote for. Is that not right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you had the, you know, you had all these different areas of creativity, literally sitting at a table, encouraging each other, playing word game. So, you know, uh, they, they delighted in, in, in the frivolity uh, of, of the era. And I'm sure that all came crashing down for, for, for Groucho on, on the day the stock market crashed. Uh, but but you just saw saw this this sudden sudden outpouring of of, of manners, uh, opulence, words, co- comedy, music, Irving Berlin. You know these immigrants getting sucked into the cultural mainstream. Uh, I, I find I find that very interesting. Uh, and not just culture, I think, but the the just the history of the era in general. If you want to, yeah. you can pick you can pick up any thread from their film and and films and follow it, and and you'll find out something fascinating. Whether it's the Florida land boom or you know whatever right. whatever it is, um, it's it's all there sort of to be discovered. You just pick up a string and and walk to the end of it. Right, and and this is kind of what I'm missing in the later work was the ability to tap into the culture rather than fall into a simple comedic formula. You know, Chaplin did the circus, uh, uh, you know, Keaton did college, uh, but, you know, and everybody kind of took a swing. Bob Hope did did two cowboy movies, but they were more parodies than, than, than Go West was. Uh, but they just kind of settled rather than digging in to, to kind of lambast uh, education, to lambast the Florida land boom. They didn't stay ahead of the culture in, in that respect. And it said, you know, you look at Duck Soup and, and the political satire is astounding. And, and even Animal Crackers, they're skewering high society, which they continue to do uh, repeatedly. And they're defending the little guy. And, and there's always crooks out to swindle everybody. But it, it's almost really too bad that, you know, I worked with, uh, uh, for several years with Paul Diamond, the son of IAL Diamond. And, uh, and I, it, we'd always heard about, about, uh, uh, a day at the UN. And I asked him, so is, is there anything on this? And he sent me a, uh, uh, a page from IAL Diamond's unpublished autobiography, uh, where they talk about the, inspiration. He and Billy Wilder were in New York and they were promoting Some Like It Hot. And they got stuck uh, in New York at the same time the UN General Assembly was meeting and Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian premier, was pounding on, on, the, on, the, on his desk with his shoe and, and the Cold War was, was, was at an all-time high. And uh, they thought this is like a Marx Brothers movie. And when they got back, According to uh, this page in the book, they said about they spent a couple weeks working out a story, a quasi sequel to Duck Soup, in which uh, the Marx Brothers, who were jewel thieves, ended up pretending to be diplomats. Uh, and when Billy Wilder called Groucho to say, uh, "We'd love to get together with you and your brothers," he says, "Don't bother, Chico's dying." And that was the end of that. Now, Scott Alexander just shared uh, a letter that he had dug up uh, recently, uh, and I don't know where, uh, but it was it was uh, 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 Billy Wilder saying that they had written 40 pages of this movie. 
I have no idea what, if where they are, if they exist, what does it matter now? But I'm just kind of mad. Nanochka, uh, you know, was made uh, uh, Billy Wilder, writer, director, German background like the Marxes. Somebody who was a really, really great comedy director. Had he been able to hook up with them, you know, after room service, <laughs> that you know, you know, they they weren't continuing to be guided by top talent. And, and, and it's kind of a shame in, in that respect because had, had Billy Wilder or Howard Hawks got, gotten the Marx Brothers, uh, I think they would have led them into much more contemporary satire uh, that would have continued to make the brothers more relevant than becoming uh, an act that, that was going through the same paces again and again, trying to follow a formula that worked for a time. It's possible. And it certainly is, you know, endlessly delightful to explore all the what could have been's in their later career. But I think Billy Wilder or anyone else trying to uh, breathe new life into the Marx Brothers at that point would have been up against the lack of enthusiasm on the part of the brothers themselves, you know? Uh, I mean, Chico always had enthusiasm for collecting a paycheck, but, yeah. um, you know, that Marx Brothers were less interested in being the Marx Brothers as as we get deeper into the 40s. And, and a really good point Matthew has made is that, you know, over the course of their film career, we kind of see them going from being right in the center of the zeitgeist to being more of a nostalgia act, you know, um, by the, those later MGMs. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder about the, the power of nostalgia with these things. It's inevitable if you have longevity, you're going to become part of other people's nostalgic thinking. It's not necessarily bad. And nostalgia has been something of an engine in your work, wouldn't you say? Uh, it's been a huge engine. But, you know, is it nostalgia when you're living with it every day? Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about my two meetings, two times I was in the same room with Groucho. Let's do that, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, now that you mentioned, I guess, so, so <laughs> I, I, I know that uh, you had, a, you had a, a woman on, um, you know, the head of uh, the, the daughter, what, what, I'm sorry, what's her first yes, name? Yes, Nell, Nell Minow. Nell Minow, yes, that uh, she talked about meeting Groucho at Northwestern University where they had a fine film festival and, and he was there. Uh, saw it in the paper, a little tiny thing, that he was going to be at McGraw Gym uh, on the campus of Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois. And I and about a thousand others uh, sitting on the floor, and he was just on a little podium uh, uh, with a, a mic stand and, uh, and wearing a white turtleneck and a sport coat, uh, no beret, and uh, the cigar wasn't lit. Uh, I Took me a long time to remember if he even had a cigar. Anyway, he was there uh, invited by Bergen Evans, who, who there are several letters to and from uh, in the Groucho letters, who was a, a longtime uh, professor there. And I believe the author of a book, something, the, the Encyclopedia of Nonsense or something to, to that effect. And so this was a, a very relaxed Groucho. This was a Groucho, uh, the kind of Groucho you see in his writing where he has a young educated audience and he wants to he wants their approval as a learned person you know uh, uh, to to 
look at him not just as, as one of the funniest people who ever lived, but somebody who had accumulated a great deal of knowledge and understood it and, 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 and read vociferously and was engaged in politics. And so, so much of his time was spent skewering Richard Nixon. That was, you know, at the height of the anti-war movement, which, let's face it, the, the Marx Brothers became a, a symbol of rebellion uh, within, within the college world at the time of upheaval and people protesting uh, against the war in, to such a degree that it changed American policy. We have to remember the strength uh, of that movement. And, and, and Groucho just kind of fed the sourdough, <laughs> as it were. And uh, he was everything you've ever read those out of my dinner with Groucho Marx, that he was charming and urbane and, and told good stories. He didn't sing, didn't have an accompanist or anything. And I would say he probably did close to an hour, and uh, and 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 definitely, as I, as I recall, uh, everyone standing and applauding him, and uh, you know, you know, it was almost like, yeah, give me a little more, come on, come on. <laughs> he did. He enjoyed it. You know. Was Aaron a visible presence there, or was this slightly pre-Aaron? This was this was pre-Aaron Aaron Fleming for pre-Aaron. sure. Mm-hmm. And the second time was post-Aaron Fleming. Uh, when I arrived in, in L.A. in 1975, I was very fortunate that uh, I started working almost right away, uh, writing for uh, David Steinberg, the National Lampoon, uh, the Jeffersons, and, and but I wasn't making a lot of money, uh, not, you know, barely enough for groceries. And, um, and so to get free records, I, I wrote uh, record reviews for this utter rag. <laughs> uh, I can't even, the marquee, I believe it was called. And so I'd have to drop, drive 30 miles to the, to where they were printing and drop off my stuff every couple weeks. And, uh, and while I was there, I was started telling Marx Brothers stories uh, uh, to, to the editor. And we were having a good laugh over this stuff. And he calls me back a week later and he says, Hey, how'd you like to go on an interview with me? And I said, well, it depends who you interview. He goes, Groucho Marx. I said, you're kidding. He goes, no. No, I got a hold of, he got a hold of Aaron Fleming somehow. And, uh, uh, and they agreed. And I couldn't believe that this was going to happen, that I was going to meet my hero. Uh, and, and I gathered up my, at that time, like three or four Marx Brothers books. I said, like, oh, I'm going to get them to sign them. This is going to be great. I'm going to tell them how he inspired me. Uh, and, 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 and we drive up Hillcrest Drive and, and beautiful house. Uh, it's a white, uh, now we call it postmodern, then they call it uh, modernist house. Uh, the backyard opened out to a tremendous view uh, uh, towards the east uh, uh, of the city, you know, well past downtown, just an astounding view, beautiful pool, uh, uh, really sleek, white, white walls and ceilings. Uh, uh, and when you first walked in, you were met by the uh, Albert, Albert Decker painting uh, of the Marx Brothers uh, dressed, you know, like the Dutch masters. Oh, yes. John Decker. Yes, yes. John Decker. Yes. Yes. Um, 
and the hat rack uh, filled with all the berets and, and there's a, like, a, like a gorilla head or something on it. Uh, I, was, I was disappointed there was no safari hat, uh, but I did see, you know, like the one with all the golf balls that he had worn on, on Dick Cavett. And, you know, the, the, all the ridiculous berets he'd taken after stopping wear those ridiculous toupees. Uh, and we waited for a long time and finally this skinny lady comes out and says, uh, come in here, and we go into, uh, I guess the house had been newly redecorated. What was his name? Jeffrey Rosen, I think. Uh, it was a fancy decorator at the time who, who decorated quite against the tone of the house. In my memory, that, you know, a lot of fabrics on walls and bright colors and, and, and stuff, when it was designed to be very spare and white and pure, and, and, and I believe I, I saw this, uh, it was for sale a couple of years ago. Uh, I know I, I saw somewhere in one of Arthur's books or something that Groucho had spent $300,000 to build this in the, in the mid-50s. And it was for sale for $13.5 <laughs> a few years ago. So it's probably even higher than that now. But a single-story, beautiful place, uh, overdecorated, like I said. And so we wait and we wait, and finally Groucho comes out. And as I, as I say in my book, uh, you know, uh, that he had been battling numerous uh, medical problems and the, the, the infirmaries, <laughs> infirmities were, were winning the battle. Uh, and he was, his eyes were roomy. He was, he was not even the person you heard on a night with Groucho, who was, you know, reduced following a, a, a major stroke. No assistance in, in walking, and uh, you know, in my family, people didn't live to be eighty-seven, so <laughs> I didn't have a lot of experience. Uh, you know, uh, you know, today you, you see you see many more people, but uh, he was not in good shape, and uh, and his mind seemed to drift a bit, and I wasn't conducting the interview. My my the editor was, and uh, you know, he started talking about you know, tell me about you know, you're debuting on Broadway, and it wasn't going very far. And I knew the story about uh, his mother, Minnie, having broken her leg and had to be carried through the aisle on a chair. And so I said, was your mother there? And all of a sudden, Groucho snapped to attention and went, no, she was in jail. (laughs) 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 And and that was the the sole... flash of of the man that i was hoping to see uh and 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 it got worse he he didn't want to be doing this and finally uh, you know he said i don't care if you're from rolling stone or something and and aaron said oh, they're not from rolling stone and he goes you told me they were from rolling stone and uh, and obviously she had lied to him to get him out of bed that was her job as i saw it was to, to get him out of bed. Now, uh, you know, and so he tell, he throws us out. He says, get out, you know, like Trentino, you know, <laughs> never darkened my towels again. Uh, and and I, I was stunned and, and so disappointed. And, you know, and she's ushering us out. And I said, hey, can I, this isn't, you know, can I talk to Aaron? And uh, she said, I'm Aaron. And now I had only seen her in the Woody Allen movie. Her hair was long and curly, and she was a very attractive woman. And she, her hair was very short and gaunt, very different 
looking and, and and it kind of bolstered the the rumors I've heard in later years about the amount of drug use uh, that she was involved in uh, you know and uh, you know and I and I said well you know it, it, I feel terrible because I just wanted him to know how, how he inspired me and that that it's happening for me and I do it and she goes he wouldn't understand that <laughs> which I found very disappointing uh, and so I went home and literally got in bed and pulled the blanket over my head. <laughs> it was it was highly dis- discouraging. And, you know, it wasn't really until years later when, when you started to read more about who Groucho was and, 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 and the fact that the man acquired a nickname in, what, 1911? <laughs> and, it, and it stuck. There was a reason. Uh, so did that momentarily dampen your uh, enthusiasm for the for the work for the legacy or no it, it it and right after that i went back to at that time uh the best of groucho was playing on ktla every night at 10 and, and i was still watching it but but i began to separate uh the man and the work and and as it more pertained to me to be to be a, an inspiration rather than a role model uh and 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 that's when i began to collect the the marx brothers in that you know i i can't afford the really good stuff you know the really good posters for the coconuts and stuff but you know i i have a lot of foreign once I have, uh, I've managed to get Spanish heralds from every one uh, uh, of the films and programs from Sweden and Denmark, and and I just got, and I just got um, from for my seventieth birthday, I bought myself a uh, a giant French poster from the '62 re-release, uh, in which I translated the the writing on it: uh, "A peach, a treasure, and the Marx Brothers' last final film." Um, uh, and it's just those three giant heads from Love Happy on an enormous oh, poster, yes. uh, and 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 I, and I love that. So they 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 become what? How did how did I get to where I am? And that road was paved uh, through Minnie's Boys, uh, and and it, it just the role that they played in my life changed, uh, and and you know, and I as I became more and more accomplished as a filmmaker, which is a long process, I have to say, uh, the more critical I became of, of the films th- themselves, and particularly uh, a lot of the, the, the directing, uh, the editing, uh, uh, although I think, you know, some things deserve more credit uh, than they get. For instance, you know, I think like one of the highlights, well, any any time... I, I don't know why they stopped just making musicals. That, that, that I don't know why they kind of abandoned it because whenever, you know, you start a song uh, in the movies, it, it's, it's great. You know, I, I always say, sing while you sell is, is, is one of the, 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 the best things in in any Marx Brothers movie because they're going for it you, you know somebody's trying to give it some scope some movement some energy although I still don't get 
the girl singer, I don't know her name, you know, whose whole bit was that she didn't move her face, facial muscles, but sang. <laughs> but <laughs> that was always a weird one to me. There's a lot of weird things in that movie. But, but, but you know, when you think of Hooray for Captain Spaulding and Lydia the Tattooed Lady and whatever it is, I'm against it and Fredonia's going to war. This is where the movies take off. This is, this is where, where, where everything comes together. The musical abilities uh, 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 of the group, the comedy, uh, uh, playing against, you know, normal musical norms, even, you know, and, and Ruby and Kelmar stuff. That for me is where they, they kind of missed the boat going down the road. They fell into the formula and it was other people singing. I don't care about, you know, and I, I watch at the circus a lot. And when I was watching it again, I said, thank God for rock and roll to save us from, from another generation of, uh, <laughs> of two blind loves. <laughs> Alan Jones, I don't mind as much. But, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the Tenement Symphony, oh, my God, what is that doing in this movie? You know, uh, where's the fun music, you know? Uh, so I, I do have a bone to pick there. But once again, you know, they got away. They fell into this formula that a guy who died stuck them with. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned collecting in there, and, and uh, that yeah. is one of our, our main topics here. So I, one of the things I, I wonder about is, uh, I mean, were you already an avid collector and, and toy aficionado before the Marx Brothers became uh, one of the subjects of your collection? I was not a collector per se. I always had to have certain things. I just had to have this toy, that toy. Uh, and, and my parents were, were uh, I don't know, I don't know. They, they, they answered those, those prayers. Uh, whether to placate me because uh, I was so demanding or, or what, I'm not sure. But, but there were just objects and toys that came on TV that were, uh, you just, you needed them. You couldn't live without them. And then you get to the point, well, hey, I'm moving to L.A. And, and I find my first Marx Brothers movie poster, a 1962 re-release of A Night at the Opera uh, in Swedish. And, uh, and, and I realized now I can afford <laughs> foreign titles. And I started acquiring, you know, as many as I could find and afford and uh, when figures came out, like the F&B Groucho, I grabbed those. Uh, I, I started to collect uh, the board games. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's the You Bet Your Life game and, and the Groucho TV game. So they didn't have to say You Bet Your Life. <laughs> and and, and a actually, the, the You Bet Your Life one is, is very good because it comes with grease paint and, and, a, and a rubber cigar so, so someone can play Groucho. Uh, in, in your family's version of, of, of the game. Um, but, you know, I, I, I started collecting many, many things. Uh, another big influence was uh, Robert Lesser, who had a, an amazing collection of animation-related uh, products and art, going back to The Yellow Kid and, and, and the start, of, which is really the start of, of, of 20th century comedy. And he spent a lifetime trying to get people to recognize toys as art, and and the way and the, the way he collected it, it, it certainly was. And uh, 
I saw a picture on, on the back of his book, uh, uh, you know, a celebration of comic uh, characters and toys. Um, a man sitting in a room floor to ceiling with the most amazing collection uh, of things you've ever seen. And I, and I saw my future <laughs> and, and started really much more heavily into toys. And the toys, you know, from, from my childhood and the, the, the spin-offs from the shows I, I watched, and Howdy Doody, and, and the Flintstones. And who knew that, you know, having a, a collection of 30 to 40 pieces of Flintstone toys would be the thing that got me the job with Spielberg directing the movies. Uh, that, and actually, when I, I had heard that they were looking for, this was after Beethoven, so, uh, and, and after, you know, 400 episodes of TV, that I, I became a, a, a director. And uh, I had heard that they needed a writer for the Flintstones. By the time that word had trickled down to me, the job was long done. But I was terribly surprised when they asked if they if I wanted to meet about directing it and so I spent two weeks thinking about how you would translate this and and you know many many of the same many of the same issues that you discuss on your show of of you know of, of where what is too cartoony what is what is too real where are the lines there uh, come in, came into play in 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 talking about making a, a pretty realistic uh, version of the Flintstones world, um, and and I for the first ten minutes of, of my meeting, I, I talked like this. I'm not exaggerating. That they uh, Stephen and Kathy Kennedy seemed to be used to people talking like that. For I, I guess they were, <laughs> uh, and I finally pulled myself together and managed to pull out a Polaroid uh, of of my Flintstone collection. And when Stephen saw that, his eyes lit up, <laughs> and and he saw somebody I think, who wasn't approaching this is is a job, <laughs> who is approaching this from from a point of passion, and and and, and I got the job, and it was a, an incredible an incredible uh, opportunity and learning experience, uh, and uh, I'm very proud of of what we achieved. There, but you know the same was true of so many things that that I collected, and so many of them, you know, I, I my Leave It to Beaver collection uh, started before I started uh, doing it. But when I was sixteen, I watching the show after school one day, I said to myself, I wonder what those guys are doing today, and that one thought became the germ that became the 83 movie of the week, the 84 to 89 series, and the 96 film. <laughs> well, you know, I remember seeing the Flintstones movie when it was new in, in theaters and thinking how interesting it was that uh, the Flintstones cartoon series seemed to be such a remarkable job of taking the very cartoony dynamic and performances from the honeymooners and, and making yes. that cartooniness literal and then it also had this prehistoric setting which mostly seemed to be a source of additional jokes and humor um, and then to, to turn it back into live action comedy 
is so interesting. And, and the Marx Brothers, in a way, go the other, the, in the exact same path, you know, very cartoony, real people um, who right. have been, not quite successfully, but there have been anima- attempts to animate the Marx Brothers. Well, too. I, I, uh, I will t- tell you something that I bought a Marx Brothers script at an antique store about 20 years ago. Now, that, I, I forgot to mention this when we were talking before. Supposedly, it was written by somebody uh, on staff at Paramount. And it was to be a follow-up to Duck Soup. And Zeppo is in this. Uh, and it is, it, it, you talk about satire. Uh, Groucho is a publicist coming to the opening of a gala spa, uh, in a health resort uh, 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 in, in, in aeroplane, was still spelled A-E-R-O plane. <laughs> you know, the, uh, Groucho arrives in an aeroplane. And, uh, and I always said to myself, well, you know, this is not a bad idea for a Marx Brothers movie, and maybe we could do it animated. Uh, and, and then, you know, 10 years later, oh, maybe we could do it CGI. But the fact is, you know, the, the issues with the, the family are many and multitudinous. And so I hear. Just to do anything, period, is so difficult. It's, it's ridiculous, uh, you know, how, they, how the, the mindset against against, you know, storytelling that explores a, a spectrum rather than a narrow sliver of time. The, the, the Marx Brothers make good cartoons, though. They, I loved them in, the, in all those Hollywood. There was like three of them. And, and they were the ones that seemed to, and I know you don't like the caricature. I love the caricatures. I love that they nailed them. My favorite uh, Marx Brothers caricatures are, are by Jacques Caprilic. Are you familiar with him? No. Okay, Jacques I may Caprilic. be familiar with the images. Sometimes the, the yes, uh, 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 pictures he, are familiar. He, he, he was a European immigre who worked uh, in the art department at MGM. And he did, he did primarily ads for, uh, for the trade magazines. You know, when they'd send out, uh, you know, MGM's, MGM's uh, lineup for 1939, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they would have all these ads for this. And he did these beautiful beautiful uh, color sculptures. He, uh, and uh, I have one from uh, Go West. There's another one yes. that's been on eBay for many years from a day at the races, which is autographed and selling for, uh, I think, like $4,000. I, I look at it. I look at it every now and then. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> With it, like a button eyes and materials. Yeah, uh, all, all different kinds of materials. He, yes. he was a great collagist. And actually, uh, his collection is housed... All his work for MGM. He did trailers. He did he did some main titles, a lot of posters, and he did uh, he did the covers for uh, a Chicago Tribune Sunday uh, magazine for 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 like fifteen years as well. Anyways, his collection is housed at the University of Wyoming, and one of these days I'd like to go up there and reassemble his stuff and shoot it with 3D cameras because what he used to do was he'd create these sculptures and then he'd light them and photograph them himself. So, so, so you really got the shadows and stuff. It's not, you know, their version of, of, uh, of uh, Photoshop in 1942. Uh, and and his, his work is just beautiful. Well, those comments make me think of the photos in your book, you know, which are also extremely well uh, composed and lit photography of your toy collection. And I, and I do want to make sure our listeners understand, anyone who, who 
might find this interesting. If you're interested not only in toys and collectibles, but really in the pop culture of the last century, this book is page after page of, and a lot of it is it is uh, from the world of classic comedy, Marx Brothers and other classic comedy collectibles, but oh. encompassing cartoons and comic books and television and everything you can think of. Uh, it's really quite a, uh, quite a playroom you have there. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm in great debt to my brother-in-law, Joe Pellegrini, who's one of the top tabletop uh, commercial photographers in the country. I mean, for instance, every Subway sandwich you've seen on a billboard, in a magazine, in the store, on the menu, uh, behind the counter, he, sh- he has shot for the last 16 years. He shoots sweaty Coke bottles and bowls <laughs> of cereal, and he makes them look gorgeous and inviting. And he did the same with, with our collection. And, and I'm really indebted to him because the close-ups i just said you you know i i i didn't want to i didn't want to to micromanage him uh, on that i wanted him to find what was the most interesting things when you get so much closer than you would normally get and you know i mean when he take a picture it's not like he takes a picture there's like 30 focuses for for a depth of field of of a quarter inch or something you know (laughs) so he didn't use his phone huh no, 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 no. No, I think his camera, his camera, I think it costs more than their first house. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. No, my life in toys, it's been out since September 13th. And, and you know, we're not, we're not John Grisham, but uh, I, I'm I, I very heartened uh, that, that people are so, so enjoying the book and that I can share the things that I'm passionate about about comedy, about the old TV shows, about, I'm very lucky that so many of the things that, that, that I worked on uh, had toy lines, you know, <laughs> the Flintstones, we created, you know, hundreds uh, uh, of products, but Happy Days, you know, and they're still making Happy Days toys today, and I'm still buying them. Uh, and, 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 you know, Mork and Mindy, which, you know, I, I, I spent two years and, and was on Happy Days when, when Robin was introduced. Uh, and, and there's a slew of great toys, very, very interesting toys. And, and, and I wanted to mention, you know, working with Robin and how that was the closest thing you could ever get to, I believe, in working with the Marx Brothers, that in many ways he embodied all three of them, the, the, the zany improvisational wit the childlike innocence that he could draw, especially as Mork being a, a, an alien, a blank page to our world and, and, and its vagaries. And, and, and also he could turn up and be a, be a fast-talking con man. <laughs> and, and the range was, was, was so amazing. And, and, and he was a, a, a huge, huge Marx Brothers fan. And it all often laps in, into groucho uh, uh, but you know, and, and Jonathan Winters, you know, who, who did the final season of Morgan Mitty, and it was in the Flintstones too. Very similar minds, but very different. And, and uh, Jonathan was totally everything came from within. And and whereas with with Robin, everything in the world came and went through this Cuisinart that was his head. Uh, and, and came out uh, in a very unique fashion. 
Certainly, we we have, uh, I think, cataloged, maybe even on this show, definitely in the council group, uh, times in the work of Robin Williams, where he has very specifically referenced or impersonated the Marx Brothers. But I wonder, did did he ever talk about them? Did you ever have a Marxian moment with him on the set? No, no, we didn't have many moments. Uh, no, uh, uh, no, no, uh, you know, the, when I came, Gary Marshall kind of drafted me. I didn't realize that the, the spaceship was taking on water when, yeah. when I got there and the network had just eaten, uh, thrown out their next seven scripts. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it was all, we were always, we were always, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> we were always in the battle scene uh, from, from Duck Soup, <laughs> scene, <laughs> between the network and the stage and, and, you know, and let's face it, Robin. Robin was running wild uh, at night. Uh, uh, you know, at that time, uh, during that last season, it was with John Belushi the night he OD'd. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on there. Uh, you know, his wife uh, once confided to my wife that uh, uh, they spent their Saturdays going all over town, paying off drug dealers to the tune of ten, twelve thousand a week. So, <laughs> so some crazy times. So he wasn't exactly teaching a course in classic film comedy at the time. No, no, but he was, he was, he knew it. He knew it like he knew so much. I mean, he, he, he had an amazing, uh, an amazing memory and I was always lugging around like an old satchel, uh, 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 you know, like, like Dr. Hackenbush uh, <laughs> was carrying around, uh, filled with books that he was reading. He, he, he had a, you know, he, he was a sponge in so many ways. You also met and crossed paths and worked with George Fenneman at one point. Didn't you? George, yes. Yeah, tell George, us about uh, Fenneman. Or, okay, or Fenement, so, as we fondly think of it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I used to watch him uh, as a young man uh, on, on You Bet Your Life, you know, who'd come out and fix the microphones when people walked in. And even as a kid, I'd say to myself, why didn't somebody do that before, during the commercial? <laughs> Uh, but he was a fine, you know, uh, like Margaret Dumont, uh, he, he, he meshed well with Groucho and was a good foil uh, for him. And so I believe he was in the Happy Days first episode of the season six three-parter Westward Ho. I don't remember much about those shows because I didn't like them. I didn't like the, the, the Hollywood shows where Fonzie jumped the shark either. I mean, <laughs> getting very far away from where I thought the show should be. Uh, but, but anyways, so in order to publicize the Leopard Lodge's uh, Western Rodeo or whatever it was, your roving reporter, George Fenneman, here to interview Howard Cunningham. And he, he just <laughs> came in, I think he came in on Thursday and Friday, and he was just sitting on the couch and our audience didn't know who he was. <laughs> you know, he was still doing, was he still doing the home, home savings and loan commercials in Los Angeles? He was their spokesman for like 30 years. And then I think they went under during the Reagan administration. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, his hair was still dyed jet black. His voice was still, was still great. And, uh, and, and I enjoyed it. Like I said, I, the, 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 uh, audience, Mr. George Fenneman and, you know, Huh? <laughs> um, but the, the other person I worked with who was in a Marx Brothers movie, uh, uh, I, 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 Ron Levitt, who had gone to uh, uh, create Married with Children, 
uh, and I were working together for a while, and we were brought on to replace the producers of the Bad News Bears series. And Ron went to the office to try and lock things down, and I went to the set to try and make sure that the things that were in the script were coming back, because they weren't coming back, supposedly. And so this was a crew who I did not hire, who knew, who figured this last guy didn't last long. This guy probably won't either. So nobody was very welcoming except for one person, um, Jerry Marin, who, who your listeners may know as a little Professor Adam in, at the circus. Uh, and, and, and I realized as soon as I saw him and a couple of other little people there that it, of course, it made sense. You know, so, so when you, the kids went to school, they, they would stand in and you'd light them in, instead, instead of the kids, rather than have another kid who would have to go back to school and whose work they would run out before the kids. So him and his, his lovely uh, wife, Elizabeth, uh, were, were on the show. And Jerry welcomed me. Jerry, come on, here, sit over here with me, smoking, smoking a, a, a huge cigar, which looked even bigger on him. And he gave me the sports section, and he was uh, really sweet. And the strangest thing is, I had met Jerry Marin before. When I was seven years old, he was a little Oscar. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the four or five uh, little people that the Oscar Meyer company put in wiener, giant uh, wiener mobiles, traveling the country, uh, you know, promoting their products, giving out wiener whistles, do 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 do. Uh, and he was a little Oscar when it stopped in my neighborhood and I got on the Wienermobile and, uh, and, 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 and there he was again on my first day, uh, on, on a single camera show. Uh, and, and we spent a lot of time together. Like I said, he was really nice and, and worked with the kids cause he was a great athlete, supposedly a really good golfer and he, and he, and he knew baseball inside out and he really helped the kids with their fielding and, you know. To show them how to get down <laughs> to pick up a grounder. And, and you know, and, and I talked to him. I, I, I remember my conversation when I finally admitted about little Oscar uh, far more clearly than, <laughs> than, than I, I, I do my conversation about working with the Marx Brothers. I, I do remember he said, we smoked a lot of cigars. Uh, but uh, he said, being, being little Oscar, he said, uh, the only problem, it was a good gig. He did it for like four years. And the only problem was kids kicking him in the shins <laughs> and that the Wienermobile drove like shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it does look like a style over substance conveyance, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it certainly, it certainly does. But, you know, I used to see people like, like Dan Seymour on Batman, who was, uh, who was uh, the, the police captain in, in a night in Casablanca. And you, you start picking out the, 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 the small part people and you see them over the years. But you know, you, know, you know them from the Marx Brothers, and that's how you'll always think of them. Did you have something there, Matthew? Yeah, I just wanted to briefly uh, just circle back to to the the, the collecting. Um, our, our listeners won't know this, but uh, we record this with a with a with a video feed, and I can see over <laughs> Brian's shoulder uh, those fabulous, wonderful, uh, love happy dolls in yes. the flesh. So I, I was just going to say, could you could you just tell us some of the Marxian plums in your collection? Well, as I said, I I, I love the board games. I uh, the the, the 
F and B uh, Groucho is wonderful. I have the Groucho goggles from about 1958 with the big spinning eyes and, and a Groucho nose and, and 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 a mouth with a cigar firmly planted in it, and, and the cigar is a wolf whistle, uh, and. and you know, and, and it's 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 definitely licensed, and Groucho's on, on the on the thing, but that's probably like a, a twenty nine cent toy, uh, and, and so obviously somebody felt there was kid appeal there, and uh, as I said, I have all the the Spanish heralds and the the love happy dolls uh, I bought uh, in the in their boxes from a, a, a what used to be a very very fine uh, antique store in in Seattle, and I. Did that 28 years ago, and uh, if you've ever seen them, they're 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 very hued to the uh, artwork from uh, the posters with uh, the Marx Brothers uh, big heads, and they do and they do look significantly older than they do <laughs> in in most of the Marx Brothers caricatures and, and artwork, uh, deservedly. Big heads and small yes, hats. Yes, with very tiny hats. And so the figures are, are very nice and clothed beautifully. Uh, Groucho's wearing a tuxedo. Harpo's wearing a yellow corduroy suit with a, with a red flower. And, and Chico has a, a yellow pants and, and a green jacket and, a, and, and green hat. And what is uh, sadly uh, undistinguished these are the fact that uh, the they wanted evidently for Groucho and Chico uh, to be darker complected than Harpo, probably to make Harpo look more angelic. But that's a very early in, in, in forming uh, rubber heads that we would come to see very frequently on hand puppets primarily uh, throughout the next uh, uh, 20, 25 years. And so the process wasn't very good. And so interacting with sunlight since 1950, whatever, 51, whenever that is, uh, the, the skin tones have darkened significantly. I did lighten them up a touch in the book to make them look more like they would have originally. But, um, you know, the first thing that people say is, oh, oh, they're, they're black. And it makes, you know, puts a whole new spin on who that man. Uh, <laughs> uh, which, by the way, I, I love that number, and I love the way everybody's finally gets integrated in, into it. Um, uh, but you know, speaking of love happy, you know, you know Frank Tashlin, who who wrote a lot of love happy, and he wrote, did he write Casablanca too? Most of the, uh, I think he was a, contributed to it. Yeah, Tashlin, a gag yeah. Man on it. yeah, okay. So you know, Tashlin became the top comedy director uh, in, in the 50s in, in America. You know, in England, you had one, you know, you had everybody at the Ealing Studios who was doing wonderful, sophisticated stuff. But but Tashlin was a guy, you know, who, who was a Warner Brothers director, one of the Gower Gulch guys with, with Chuck Jones and, 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 and those, Frizz Freeling and all those people uh, who, who, who worked uh, also uh, doing gag writing for films and stuff. And and I'm just sorry that after the disastrous preview of A Night in Casablanca, he didn't stand up and say what he did after the disastrous screening of the Lemon Drop Kid, the, the Bob Hope movie uh, uh, that he that he worked on. And and they're trying to talk about what they could have done, what they could do to fix it. And he stood up and said, I know how to fix this thing. Let me have it and I'll make it great. 
and 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 the studio didn't want him. Bob Hope said, "We're we're, we're not doing. We're not going to get any worse. Let's do this." And and that launched Tashlin's directing career in earnest. And, and I so wish that he had stood up after the, what was it, like a two-hour and ten-minute cut of a night in Casa. What were they thinking, first of all? What were they thinking? Uh, you know, this is me speaking, who's never made a movie more than 86 minutes. You know? <laughs> My first goal is not, not to bore anybody. But, you know... It's really too bad that Groucho, a great writer, seriously, I read his stuff and it's clever, it's witty. His correspondence with the great writers of his generation, you know, he's, 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 he's their equal on a page. He really is. I'm not talking about storytelling. I'm just saying writing a letter, being funny, being sharp, witty. You know, why didn't he say rather than, you know, write somebody, ah, this one's looking to be a stinker. I need to stand up and say, let me do this. And actually, there's a page in the, the, the Marx Brothers scrapbook, you know, where, where, where he's got notes all over a page. So why not go the, the next step? Take the money for it, for God's sakes. <laughs> Take responsibility. <laughs> if you don't like the way things are going, fight for it. Don't just kind of say, ah, you know, I'm done with this. You know, I'm doing it for Chico. <laughs> And now, ladies and gentlemen, by popular demand of Bob Gasell, Brian Levant will rank the 13 Marx Brothers films. Okay. Okay. This is tough. All right. How about this? Rather than rank them, could I just go through them and try and just say a word or two about each? Is that better? All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll list them chronologically and you can either give a numerical rating or a few words of, uh, of opinion. The Coconuts, 1929. Primitive. Primitive. Primitive uh, filmic art. Uh, I, I heard once on the show that in England they wouldn't even play it because the quality was so poor. Uh, okay, Animal Crackers, 1930. Love it. Uh, hooray for Captain Spaulding. That's all I have to say. And, and I, when I saw Frank uh, Ferrante, saw his, uh, his, his show uh, with, with, uh, uh, with the guy who did Harpo and Chico, to see the the teapot business and the spoons and everything coming out out, out of Harpo's uh, jacket, uh, incredible, and and uh, uh, to understand how that was perfected and and it comes across so well in that film. Monkey business, nineteen thirty one. Uh, I I was so glad to to see them with a proper comedy director and that it proved that they needn't rely on their stage success to continue as, as film stars. Horse Feathers, 1932. Satiric, wonderful. I think this is really the Marx Brothers at the, the height of their popularity in the air. And even though it was ground that had been trod by, by Harold Lloyd and, and Buster Keaton, it was fresh and fun. Duck Soup, 33. Their masterpiece, their masterpiece, but by far, the, the the last time I saw it, what what delighted me the most was in the battle scenes that every every shot Groucho had a different outfit on. They were pushing from every direction, uh, from from music, visually, cinematically. The sets were opulent. The musical numbers were inspiring and fun. Uh, it, it 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 is their their best film, hands down, to me. 
uh, A Night at the Opera, 1935. I love A Night at the Opera. I saw uh, it with my 13-year-old daughter and her, her, her friend Lowell Gans's son 25 years ago at the Alex Theater where, with Arthur, Arthur uh, Marks introducing it and uh, told a wonderful story, which I can tell you at the end of this, so we can leave on that. And I always thought it was the worst edited film I'd ever seen. When I saw it with a full hysterical audience, it was the best edited film I'd ever seen. Uh, every, every time the laugh would just fade to the perfect amount, cut, cut, perfect. It was, it was so spot on. And, and I guess that was uh, the residue of writers timing laughs in, in the live show. So maybe I shouldn't be so critical of those. <laughs> uh, Day of the Races, 1937. I, I think that the, the process uh, of, of previewing the material heard it cinematically. I think that it is a very well-made film. Uh, Sam Wood was not the funniest man who ever lived, uh, but he was a very competent director. And the musical numbers in, in there are, are, are top flight, a, a little racist, <laughs> not even a little racist, very, very racist, but uh, delightful, just de- delightful. Uh, who that man and, and, and Harpo with, with the penny whistle, uh, is is just it's it's great it's great movie making it's great music. It's all downhill from here, folks. <laughs> Room service. <laughs> Room service. I have only I I can confess I have only seen once. I was disappointed. I guess everybody was disappointed uh, in, in it, and it is far too much of a play. Uh, somehow somehow Animal Crackers never came off with the same sense of confinement. Uh, uh, despite it, despite it, its roots, uh, but this, I mean, yes, it was smart to try and adapt existing material to the Marx Brothers, but and it kind of fit the formula that they were stuck in. But in terms of being, of of doing what the Marx Brothers did best, uh, of being satirists, uh, uh, of being people who who puncture the pretensions of society, uh, that it it. it doesn't accomplish any of those goals. At the Circus, 1939. I know most people don't love it. It is it is my second favorite Marx Brothers film. As, as I told you, I, I fell in love with the Marx Brothers watching uh, the scene in the strong man's uh, room uh, to see the imagination at play. Uh, I never enjoyed Chico more in a film than in, in at the circus. And I loved the fact that it had some production value, that, that, that they were shooting in the rain for, for starters. You know, I mean, that's, that's tough and expensive and it's a sound problem, but they did it because, and they did it and it just made that get the, to open, to open the movie. It, it gave it a reality that had been lacking in many of the openings of their films to me. Go West, 1940. Uh, should have been much more of a satire on Westerns, much in the way that Frank Tashlin's uh, Son of Paleface with Bob Hope was. But instead, they, they you know, more, more, more stolen deeds, more, <laughs> more bad guys, more formula. And, and you know, it, it's, I think how Chico's probably like, what, 50 by the time they're making this movie? 
and, and, and the physical demands of, of the comedy have risen, but their ability to perform it themselves has de decreased. <laughs> and I'm seeing it in the filmmaking, which I think is a disappointment. At the big store, 1941. There are things I like very much in the big store. Uh, I, I like the music, I'll, not the Tenement Symphony particularly, but I like it. When, I like it when the Marx Brothers make music. And by the way, I, I enjoyed very much uh, uh, your show that's available, uh, particularly Scott, oh, Scott Alexander. I, I, oh my God, can this guy pound the ivories? Um, yeah, who knew? Yeah, uh, but you know, it's like. I don't know how many times it, it, it's plagued by some bad writing that how many times we go back to that two shot in, in, in his office. We got to do something about this. We follow him. Or do, you know, and and it's just ch always chasing its tail. And, and there's too much too much room given to other people in, in, in the movie that should be centered on our stars. And uh uh, and, and there's much too much of Tony Martin. I guess he was a big star then. I guess they were servicing him. But again, uh, I, was anybody coming to see Tony Martin sing in the audience? I don't know. You, tell me this. Did, is, was that a draw? Uh, he he was uh, billed with the Marx Brothers above the title, which didn't happen often or ever. Matthew is a better person to answer this than I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he, he was Emma. a box office draw, I suppose. Oh. Uh, not today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are we? Uh, Night in Casablanca. Night in Casablanca, I think, it, it is, is so disappointing because I know that they were drawn back to have a, a, a little more control, a little bigger piece of the pie. And they've been out for a few years at this point. And, and it just doesn't make it. And I, and I put a lot of the blame there on Archie Mayo. Uh, I don't think he was a comedy director. I don't think he was a person who who worked well with them. Uh, he he was a guy, you know. I mean, he walked away from the business at one point, so he wasn't really very committed to to the craft, and 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 particularly not. You, you don't think of him as a comedy director, really. You know, uh, he did the Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart. So what is he doing with the Marx Brothers? This is what I, what I was saying before. The lack of pure comedy people, when they got away from, from, from the people whose lives revolved around creating laughter, their films suffered. You know, and then that, and to a degree, Thalberg is responsible for that. <laughs> Love Happy, 1949. I think that the idea of Harpo starring in his own film was, was a great idea, a noble idea, and it just shows how hard it is to get a movie made then or today that, that in order to do that or to make, in effect, a, a, a movie with a silent character, you know, that Chaplin had already given up doing that, Keaton, <laughs> and Laurel and Hardy and Harold Lloyd had long before that thrown, said, okay, it doesn't work. But, you know, the pressure of getting Chico in there, of, of getting Groucho to do the voiceovers and then sticking him in uh, with, at least with a real mustache, uh, that, that, that's notable. <laughs> uh, 
But I, I like Harpo in it. I like a lot of the things that I believe came from Tashlin and that. But once again, there's trying to save the starving theater company, which didn't work in, in room service. Uh, and I don't, to me, it, it's even by then, it was, it was what I think of when I see stories about, well, we're losing the house because they're building a freeway through it. It was just something that people, I don't know, that a studio executive could understand what the story was. But it's not trying as hard as, as I, I guess, who was it who started that project years early? Was it Kaufman or? Ben Hecht and Harpo, I think. Right, right. Yeah. Well, Ben, you know. Uh, and Ben Hecht uh, did great Hitchcock stuff. The, it was Burt Lancaster's partner, uh, but not the funniest guy, maybe. <laughs> Clever, witty, but, uh, you know, uh, God, I just wish that they had been in an era where their writers, you know, who, who are so smart, uh, Sheikman, S.J. Perlman, uh, you know, Pira, Robert Pirosh, uh, uh, Harry, Ruby and Kellner, you know, they weren't allowed to become directors. And so this stuff was always passed off to people who saw it as, as a product instead, instead of perpetuating uh, 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 the work of, 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 a, of a legendary group of, of performers. And, and that's what, that's what makes me sad about the, the studio system and glad it was crushed uh, eventually. So it wasn't just the whims and, uh, of these guys. And, and, and you had to display an affection and passion for what you're doing. Otherwise, you, weren't, you, you don't get the job <laughs> anymore. Rather than, Sam, here, do this. Sam, go fill in on Gone with the Wind. Sam, we, we need you over on stage eight. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was just good. I was just wondering how recently you've seen a night in Casablanca because it is one that when people revisit it, uh, they often find they're often pleasantly surprised by um, how how close it is to at least the Marx Brothers of the uh, Night at the Opera, Day at the Races period. And although in the first time through, it sort of blends in with the lesser later films. For some reason, its stature has risen, um, and and that tends to be what we find. Fans are very likely to say, "Oh, you know, Night in Casablanca." Uh, we never gave it a fair shake before. Uh, uh, have no, you seen I, it at all in recent years? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I, 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 <laughs> I, I watched. I watched it two weeks ago. And oh well, was, then you I know what you're saying. I was brutally disappointed. Uh, actually, okay. uh, Har I thought Harpo was wonderful. I thought Harpo was giving it all, and I see, and I see moments. Where Groucho's working, where he's he's filling, he doesn't have lines, so he picks up a flower, he puts it in his lapel. Later, I thought, well, maybe he's doing that to match or something that they'd shot mm -hmm. previously, and he didn't have it there. But but it looks like he's he's trying to fill the frame. He's trying to to stay alive when he doesn't have a lot to do, and he comes in so late in the movie. I know that in the earth and they, you know, the the the, uh, the Gone with the Wind cut. Uh, that, you know, the first scene was him at his other hotel. But as it is, he doesn't come into the movie for 20 minutes. And, and, uh, and, and it, they should have done more of a, once again, why wasn't it more of a parody of Casablanca? <laughs> you know, it, they got it, mixed up yeah. in the same, the same who owns the hotel and, 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 and the you know, I look at Duck Soup and these ornate, beautiful, beautiful deco sets, right? 
and, and, and even, you know, I mean, <laughs> they, they at the rate, is that the one with the, the where they, they took over stage five, the, uh, the, 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 one, the, the set with the big pool, you know, just, so, right. <laughs> just so they could do the, the water, the, the water festival or whatever it was, you know, that they were going, they were trying to be big. They were trying to be grand. And then you look at like the elevator in, in, in a night in Casablanca and it, they, they're not trying. They're not, you know, this, the, the set. Groucho had his own money invested in Nadi Kazmaika. You're not going to get Deco sets. <laughs> there yeah, it is. You know, you know, but, uh, you know they, I, hated, I hate to see them become Abbott and Costello. And, and, and the Three Stooges, you know, repeating the same formulas and the same business again and again. To me, the one who, that stock has risen is the, the big store. Uh, because I, I, li- I like the number and, and I like, you know, normally I, I believe if I was writing Marx Brothers movies, I would integrate the, the solos into other musical numbers. That's when they seem to work best, not on their own. But I do like the Harpo and the Mirrors and all the different characters and stuff. Uh, I, I'm fond of that. But, you know, then you get into things like what is the Italian family uh, oh, yes. sketch? It's it's endless. It's endless, you know, which which actually brings me to the last point. I, I had heard on an earlier, someone was debating whether the tryouts helped or hurt, uh, and and I'm of the mind that, with the exception probably of of a night at the opera, uh, uh, that that uh, you know in the stateroom scene, which they kept smaller, smaller, more, 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 right. Yeah, you couldn't do that on your feet. You couldn't make that discovery, uh, uh, you know, and stay on schedule <laughs> and not have to keep right. making the room shorter, get more people, dress them, you know, uh, get them propped, uh, all that. that. That had to be worked out in advance. But I think that it that I, I can see in a day in the races. I can tell you exactly what scenes they took on the road because they go much too long and and the directors get lazy. Uh, and, and it, they, uh, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah. You, you know, and, and then when the camera locks, that's when, you know, you know yeah, yeah, no, you know, the Tootsie Fruitsie scene. I mean, you know, they, they might mm. as well just be in front of, of, of a, uh, in front of a curtain because no one's at the betting windows. They got one extra back there yeah. <laughs> trying they, I don't think anyone told them what to do even. <laughs> You know, count money, do something. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it's just dead. Uh, and, and they just stop, stop trying to uh, em, embellish the story. See, I, what I always try to do is, is something that they, uh, in film school that they would drive into your head about the great directors, that, that every shot should be help, contribute to telling the story. And when and when when the camera just rests and let them do a bit, it, it slows down the process and it reduces them as film comedians. Uh, you know, and they always were straddling that line. Where what are we? Are we vaudeville? Are we Broadway? Are we movie? And and yes, towards the end, the salu- the the finales became more physical and more second unit and more stunt doubles and stuff. And, 
to try and get a bigger wallop. I, I don't. I like at the circus though, uh, as a finale. I find that one much more satisfying than Go West or or what else is in that. Bed. I don't. Even even uh, the horse the horse races, uh, they they manage to shoot beautifully. <laughs> But, but the last number where everybody's walking, the camera's bobbing. <laughs> I can't figure that out, how you can get one so perfect and something so, so much easier. Uh, I, get, I presume the camera's on the back of a, of a truck, isn't it, shooting oh, that yeah. finale? Well, I, it might have, to get that high, it might, they might have had to put a crane on a truck, and that would explain the bouncing. Yeah. Uh, even an eight-foot arm yeah. would explain why it would act that way, where they were probably using... Uh, uh, shooting off the side of a camera car with wider lenses, which would tend to, you know, uh, mitigate some of the bounciness, too. Well, uh, before we let you go, will you tell us the story Arthur Marks told at the screen? Ah, I would love to tell you the Arthur Marks story. So this takes place during World War II. And so, you know, nobody had a gardener. Everybody was at war. And, and, and so... So Groucho was out one day in his uh, chinos and a t-shirt and uh, mowing the lawn in front of their house in, in Beverly Hills. And all of a sudden, uh, a woman in a big Chrysler convertible pulls up to the curb and says to him, excuse me, are you the gardener? And Groucho looks around himself holding a, a lawnmower and he says, yes, I'm the gardener. And, and, and she goes, are you available? And Arthur said, my father was between pictures. So he said, yes, I'm available. And the woman goes, so what do they pay you there? And he goes, well, they don't pay me anything, but I get to sleep with the lady of the house. And with that, she drove off. (laughs) (laughs) Brian Levant is our guest. My Life and Toys is his book. And Brian is, is truly a giant of show business. If you Google him and just look at his resume, you will realize, whoever you are, just how much of his work you have seen and enjoyed over the years. Uh, thanks for being with us, Brian. And uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. I thank you for the opportunity and uh, to talk about uh, people who had a tremendous impact on my life and my career. And, uh, you know, I always say that, that uh, every day of my career, I've drawn from, from two sources. First, first was, was Hitchcock and, and what I learned uh, about storytelling. And, and the rest is really the inspiration of the Marx Brothers to, to be playful, to be fun, to be reckless, uh, to go against the grain, and, and to always look to be funny first. Amen. As you probably know, because I've picked up on the fact that you've listened to a few of our past episodes, you know that every episode ends, and we're going to do our uh, Patreon segment uh, after this, but we don't have to make you sit through that. So we will do what we always do, which is put our guest on the spot and ask for a song selection. Whatever it is, I'm against it. Brian Levant, ladies and gentlemen, he always gets his man.
Patreon subscriptions to the Marx Brothers Council podcast will be open by January 1st, and our January episode will be the first to include a bonus segment available exclusively to Patreon supporters. Matthew, I think this is our last opportunity before subscriptions open to tell our listeners a little bit about what they'll get if they subscribe. Okay, so if I had $3 and I didn't have Hmm. anything to do... with it, and uh, I was looking for a, a, a useful way of spending that. What 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 can you offer me? Well, you would be in in luck with three dollars in your <laughs> pocket because the uh, the first of our four subscription levels costs three dollars a month, a very reasonable price, which entitles subscribers to access our Patreon page and therefore all of the exclusive content we post there, namely a bonus segment attached to every upcoming episode of the podcast. Sometimes the bonus segments will be tied into the theme of the proper episode. Sometimes there will be something completely different, but it'll be a little more podcast for only $3 a month. You can't beat that. But what if I dipped into my other pocket and I found another $3 and I had $6? Well, if you had $6, you could really go wild by joining at the second level. I should have mentioned that the first level, the $3 monthly level, that's called stowaways. Stowaways are entitled to the bonus segment. At at the next level, the $6 level, um, which is uh, students of Huxley... You are entitled to the bonus epi- the bonus segments, just like a stowaway is. You also get the monthly patron postcard. Every month, an actual physical postcard from the Marx Brothers Council podcast will be delivered to your real physical mailbox on the planet Earth. Uh, we don't ship beyond the planet Earth. These will be beautiful. Each one will have a new original image. Some are designed by me. Some we're bringing in other people to uh, make them for us. And uh, one of the things I like most about the postcard is the designs won't be available anywhere else. We're not going to share them online. Uh, you can share them online if you receive the postcard and take a selfie with it. But uh, it'll be something that exists only in the physical world, which is a rarer and rarer commodity these days. So $6 a month, the bonus segment, access to the Patreon page, and the patron postcard. But you have more pockets. Uh, well, I, I was just going to say, I, I'm guessing that's as, that's as good as it gets. Surely there isn't anything more you can offer me. 
it's my pleasure to tell you <laughs> that if you are one of those people who has more than six dollars on you and uh, maybe is a fan of the merch like uh, our recent guest brian levant maybe you're a collector maybe you like marx brothers stuff and having it around uh well at the second two levels that's where the gift items really kick in if you join at our third membership level for $20 a month, yes, you get the bonus segment and access to our Patreon page. Yes, of course, you get the monthly patron postcard in your physical mailbox. You also get the limited edition, I'm really happy to be able to say this, folks, <laughs> poster print of Bogard's famous painting, After the Hunt. Wow. Uh, meticulously recreated as a digital painting printed in the form of an extremely tasteful, high-quality poster bearing not only the famous image, but the name of the artist, the title of the work, and a quote from Roscoe W. Chandler that really sums up exactly why Bogart's masterpiece is indeed great. And a dog missing. <laughs> Although there is a dog missing and a vegetable dinner. <laughs> uh, that, that rewards level is called left-handed moths. So beyond the stowaways, beyond students of Huxley, left-handed moths also get the Bogard. Which can also be used as a blanket uh, for nights you want to sleep out in your garden. <laughs> Boy, that voice, that voice out of the past. What was that? <laughs> it sounded so familiar. <laughs> Now my schoolboy Latin kicked in for the for the for the next one. <laughs> I I knew those years learning Latin weren't in vain. <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> That's right. For all of our listeners who are burdened with an extensive knowledge of Latin, there is yet another level for the highest of high rollers, for the heartiest and most enthusiastic of our supporters. If you subscribe to the Marx Brothers Council podcast to the tune of thirty dollars a month. Not only do you get the bonus segments and access to the Patreon page, not only do you get the monthly patron postcard in your physical mailbox, and not only do you get, after the first three months, the Bogard poster, you then get, in three-month increments, three more incredible gifts, like the Bogard poster, designed by me exclusively for our subscribers and not available anywhere else. Uh, these gifts are in the order you will receive them. The Huxley College Collegiate T-shirt. Uh, there's a lot of Huxley gear on the internet, some of it beautifully designed. But this, as far as I know, is the first Huxley T-shirt to feature a breathtaking view of the beautiful Huxley campus, as seen in the opening moments of Horse Feathers. And it also bears, as Matthew references, uh, a motto in Latin. That Latin motto... That Latin motto is quid quid est, ego contra est. And we will leave it to you to <laughs> decipher that. Uh, then three months after that, you'll get the Hotel de Coconut tote bag, a thrilling Art Deco design that conjures up the dear dim days of the Florida land boom. And a bag that, if anyone who doesn't know the coconut sees you with it, will assume you picked it up in the lobby of one of Florida's better hotels. Three months after that, the Kippered Herring Barrel coffee mug. A coffee mug that looks exactly like something you might live in if you were stowing away on an ocean liner. Um, also a perfect place to put a roughly eight-inch Marx Brothers figurine if you have one. It's also <laughs> not a bad place to put Kippered Herring if you have any of that. 
Uh, we will publish an article on our website and on our Patreon page showing pictures of all this beautiful merch and all these gifts. So just to summarize quickly, these are the levels. Stowaways for $3 a month, get access to the Patreon page and our monthly bonus segment. Students of Huxley for $6 a month, get access to the Patreon page and the bonus segment and the monthly patron postcard. Left-handed moths for $20 a month get both of those things. And after three months, Bogard's After the Hunt poster print. And Firefly's Cabinet is our top level, $30 a month. The Patreon page and the bonus segments, the monthly patron postcard, the Bogard poster, the Hotel to Coconut tote bag, the Huxley College collegiate t-shirt, and the Kippered Herring Barrel coffee mug. We thank anybody who is even considering subscribing for helping us to keep this thing going. Yeah, I think I, I think I can stretch to the three dollar. <laughs> well, if you like the bonus segments, Matthew, I hope you'll consider upgrading to at least the six dollar <laughs> level. And we should say we're we're using uh, American currency in conversation here, but through Patreon, we can accept all global currencies and ship internationally. I'll, I'll go for the $3 and see how it goes. Uh, my, my dollar is on a string, though. <laughs> the Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!